ability to be able to worship God through the preaching of it, I would ask you to turn to your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Before the Cross of Christ, the Birth of Christ. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, last week, we looked at verses 1 through 17, and this morning we read verses 18 through 25. The Word of God reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. Before the cross of Christ was the birth of Christ. Without the birth of Christ, there is no symbol of the cross. Without the birth of Christ, there is no Savior for the cross. And without the birth of Christ, there is no salvation by the cross. When Christians gather to celebrate the first advent of Christ this week, they do so celebrating an unprecedented event, an occasion that is so exceptional that it deserves being celebrated. The birth of Christ is the only time in history that a man was born of a virgin. The birth of Christ is the only time in history that a man was a revelation or full revelation of God. The birth of Christ is the only time in history that a man was the, was the form God used to dwell with his people. The birth of Christ is the only time in history that a man was born without sin. And thus, the birth of Christ is the only time in history that a man was able to live a life completely without sin. It is frequently said that history repeats itself. And certainly it may be true that the history of man does repeat itself. But the history of God does not. The appearance of Christ in this way, the dwelling of God with his people in this way, and the sufficient sacrifice for sin in this way, is an unrepeatable event. The exclusivity of the birth of Christ as an uncommon event deserves the attention it receives because it is the plan of God to reconcile the plan of people. By one sacrifice, Christ will neutralize sin and Satan for all of eternity. With his flair for words, G.K. Chesterton once wrote, With every step of our lives, we enter into the middle of some story, which we are certain to misunderstand. No story has been misunderstood and reinterpreted more than the birth 
life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His birth was considered a threat to the pride and position of the people of the day, rather than a delivery from their pride and position. His life was misinterpreted as the Savior expected to free people from the oppression of the nations, not the oppression of sin. His death was considered a political victory rather than the plan of God. And his resurrection was reimagined as trickery by his followers rather than as a testimony of God's faithfulness. We may mock the absurdity of such folly, not understanding how the people of Christ's time could have missed this extraordinary event and this extraordinary revelation. But let us not forget that there are those around us today who still misunderstand this event, that they still misinterpret the need for Christ. They exist separated from God because they have misunderstood their need, because they have misunderstood his grace, and because they have misunderstood his provision. At a time in our lives, each of us has existed in such a state as well. On seeing of ourselves as we were, we failed to see God as he is. As we draw nearer to our time this week of gift-giving and our tables of food and our family celebrations, let us not forget what it is we are celebrating. Let us be reminded of this story, not for the sake of tradition, but for the sake of conviction. This morning I call you to look at once again upon the story of Christ in order that we may prepare our hearts for the celebration of his coming this week. I ask you to look upon Matthew's rendering of Christ's life with scrutiny so that each of us may be prepared to scrutinize our own lives, rendering them for him. We see this morning the birth of Christ so that we may be prepared for the cross of Christ. I want you to note first the plan of God found in verses 18 through 21. The plan of God. Reading the words of Matthew, they explain, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. All of history is defined by his story. All that has come to pass and all that will come to pass is based on the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We define creation by the moment before Christ spoke and after Christ spoke. Time is defined whether or not an event took place before Christ's appearance or after Christ's appearance. And even our own lives are defined by who we were before Christ and who we are after Christ. This points to the reality that the history of humanity is a history of divinity, reminding us that all the stories that make up this record of mankind are the stories of God's work for mankind. 
the preceding verses of Matthew, they offer a picture of, of this. They share with us this long history of men and women in verses 1 through 17. And each one of those is a person with their own story of how God was at work in people and by people, orchestrating his plan both universally and individually, whether they accepted it or not. And clearly, many in that list did not. Following this long list of testimonies, the focus then narrows to Joseph and Mary, filling out the picture of God's plan more so that all that transpired with the men and women of those previous verses is defined that with, by all that will transpire with Mary and Joseph in these verses and the parallel passage in Luke chapter 1. The plan of the Lord is revealed first by what happens to Mary. After already being betrothed to Joseph, she is found to be pregnant. Luke's account writes of a visit to Mary by the angel Gabriel, who explains the events to Mary, telling her that she has found favor in the Lord, and that she will bear a son, and that son will be the heir to the throne of David, and that he will be called the Most High. Her response is noteworthy for its simplicity. She does not question its authenticity. She does not question its authority. Instead, she only questions her own ability, saying in Luke one thirty four, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The study of nature is interesting in what it reveals about the world. There are species, such as types of fish, that reproduce asexually, needing only one parent. In rabbits, experiments using heat have been used in a way to produce only female rabbits. And in honeybees, studies have been done to produce males from unfertilized eggs in something known as parthenogenesis, from the Greek term virgin birth. Despite all these advancements, all these studies, never has anything or anyone been able to produce the same effect in humans. To have a child as a human has always required both a male and a female. Indeed, Mary was right to ask, how can this be? Because even today, 2,000 years later, this is beyond human capability and beyond human imagination. There is only one way in which this can happen, and it has happened only one time. It is the work of God. Answering Mary's question by explaining that this indeed is the power of the work of the Holy Spirit Gabriel's expressing God's creative work, God's creativity and how he brought about the Messiah. Nothing reveals the creativity of God more than the creativity that is expressed in creation. Seen first at the creation of the world, Genesis chapter 1, and now at the conception of Christ here. And looking again upon those first verses of Matthew, those first 17 verses. I shared with you last week that stories only make sense if we know the characters of those stories. Showing that throughout the life of Christ, after confrontation and after teachings and after all his miracles, that people repeatedly asked, who is this man? That's exactly part of the point. He is not just a man. He is God. While the genealogy of the first 17 verses expresses the humanity of Christ, 
This event expresses the deity of Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that he might receive adoption as sons. This is a plan of God orchestrated through Mary providing Jesus, who was fully man, that he might be born under the law, subject to it, experiencing the same temptations to disobedience that any person would experience. But he's also fully God, so that he might appear without blemish. By not having a human father, he would not receive that sin nature passed through Adam, becoming the perfect lamb of sacrifice for sin's atonement. We often speak of the immaculate birth of Christ. But nothing in scripture even speaks of Christ's birth being any more miraculous than any birth. It appears that he was born just as any human was born. But it's not the manner of Christ's birth that is immaculate. It's the manner of his conception that's immaculate. He had no human father. But in a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, he is the son of God born of the seed of a woman. Without this part of Jesus' story, there is no Christ. Without this part of Jesus' story, there is no sacrifice. And without this part of Jesus' story, there is no salvation. If you do not believe in this text of the Bible, you do not believe in the Christ of the Bible. Many will accept the existence of Jesus, often exclaiming that he was nothing more than a great teacher. If that were the case, Jesus would not have been rejected for his teaching. Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah born of a virgin. If Christ then is the Son of God, born of a woman only, we must even question then, why isn't Joseph part of the story at all? Who is this man? The truth is we know very little of Joseph, except of his own leadership within his own family. First, at the appropriate time, he took Christ to the temple for his dedication. When it was necessary, he led his family to Egypt to avoid the wrath of Herod. And then, of course, when Christ was 12, he led the family to the Passover in Jerusalem. Apart from this, we only know that Joseph must have died before the crucifixion of Christ. Because at that point, there's nobody else to care for Mary. Beyond merely entrusting a son to the care of Joseph, God relies on Joseph for something very specific, for a very intentional purpose. The angel appearing to Joseph gives him specific instructions in verse 21, saying, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Like Jesus in verse 1 of Matthew 1, Joseph is also referred to as a son of David, highlighting not only his lineage, but again reminding us of 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, that we read last week in our scripture reading. It is at that point when God promises that the Messiah will come through the line of David, And so we have Jesus Christ, son of David, in verse 1. And now Joseph, son of David, in verse 21. And here we enter a weighty problem. Because while Joseph is found to be part of the line of David through Mary, 
Jesus, sorry, is found to be part of the line of David through Mary. The culture of the day only recognized the lineage through the father, through Joseph. Isaiah 43.1 establishes a precedent, though. The Lord declares to the prophet Isaiah, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The naming of a child is the claiming of a child. By the time of Joseph and Jesus, the custom was for the father to name the child, and particularly to name the newborn child on the eighth day. By naming him, Joseph is publicly declaring Jesus as his own. He is saying, this is my son, I will care for him. It is as though an official adoption has taken place. Jesus Christ is his own. He is adopting them, him then into the line of David. Joseph's obedience to this principle qualifies Jesus Christ as a legitimate heir to the throne of David. And thus, as the one who would fulfill the Lord's word of Jeremiah 23.5, it states, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This was to fulfill the Lord's prophecy years ago. But look at our text and notice how Joseph almost hinders the plan of God. Mary being found pregnant is a great scandal and it creates a major dilemma for Joseph. And in order to understand this dilemma, we must understand what it means to be betrothed during this time. The seriousness of what that was in verse 18. Because this is a far more serious concept than what we mean by engagement today. Betrothal consisted of a legal contract. It was binding on both parties, husband and wife and parents of both. If someone were able to break it, it was enforceable in a court of law. Notice also, though, that it takes nothing less than divorce to end the relationship. It doesn't say that Joseph wants to send her away. It says Joseph reasons to divorce her. That is the only option. In the eyes of the law, even though a ceremony has not taken place, they are already married. Had Joseph died, Mary would have been considered a widow. In this case, the only way Joseph could terminate the relationship was to divorce her. And this is where the dilemma comes in. As a righteous man, Joseph can't go through with this marriage because to do so would give approval to what appears to be her infidelity. As a just man, though, neither does he want to expose Mary and disgrace her, cause shame in her life that a public divorce might have even brought upon her. So he comes up with the best solution that he can think of which is to divorce her quietly, which had to be done officially in front of two witnesses. But then God intervenes with an angel. And that angel explains the entire situation to Joseph in our text. All that God purposes and proposes will come to pass according to his will. That's what we see here. This is the work of the sovereign Lord. History indeed is his story. It is a record of God fulfilling his promises 
a record of God fulfilling his passions, and a record of God fulfilling his people. The objectives of God cannot be overcome by the objectives of man. I want you to know, second, the provision of God. It is found in the name of Christ. Matthew writes in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The plan of God includes the provision of a Savior, which is further revealed by the name of Jesus, found in verses 1 and 21. The name of a child is often symbolic, often being designated to our children intentionally or purposefully in order to convey some sort of special meaning. Frequently, the name is representative of someone special in our lives. We name our children after our parents or grandparents, or if they're really extraordinary, sometimes our aunts and uncles or somebody else very special in our lives. For us, we chose Thomas's name to bring together the names of his grandfathers. At other times, names are chosen for their significance. The meaning of a name itself may serve a particular purpose. Maybe some of you chose your child's name as a way to remind you of a special truth in their lives. <laughs> Naomi's name was chosen because it was a name we enjoyed. But we cannot help but say her name and be reminded of God's faithfulness expressed in the book of Ruth. Maybe that wasn't the case at all for any of us. Maybe we chose our child's name to represent our desire for them. Elijah's name for us came from the Old Testament prophet, which signifies, my God is Yahweh. It is a characteristic that we desire for his life, that God indeed would be God of his life. And finally, sometimes names are simply chosen to represent a parent's promise towards their child. Names are given as a way to demonstrate something, to speak some truth or reality. We see that throughout scripture. Abram's name is changed to Abraham, which means father of many. Jacob, whose name meant deceiver, and he truly lived up to that by deceiving his brother out of his birthright, his name was changed to Israel in order to signify one who struggled with God because that is what he did. And we all know Peter in the New Testament the apostle's name that means rock. The names provided in scripture provide a truth from scripture. And it's no different here with the name of Christ. The plan of God revealed to Joseph in our text is for the Messiah to be named Jesus. Not only does the angel instruct Joseph to call this child Jesus, but in a separate incident with Mary, the angel there, Gabriel, tells her in verse 131, instructing Mary, you will call his name Jesus. By revealing the name Jesus, the angels are revealing to Joseph and Mary the purpose for Jesus, that he will be the provision of God to save people. The name, after all, means God saves or the Lord saves, as we talked about last week. Therefore, when the angel tells Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
The angel is indicating to Joseph that the Lord has come to redeem his people. And he will do this by the child that Joseph will name Jesus. To offer clarity for those who may be confused, the angel then specifies Jesus' task more plainly, saying Jesus will save people from their sins. He's not a regal king that they expect to reign. He's not a capable military conqueror that the people desire. He is the Savior who will save people from their sins. If we do not understand the significance of sin, we do not understand the significance of Christ. To understand sin, we must define sin as the Bible defines it. Not merely as a meaningless offense, simple infraction, or a minor breach. Sin not only violates God's law, but it violates what God has established as the natural order. The consequences are severe because it goes beyond what God has established to regulate the world. In August of 2020, slightly over a year ago, an explosion rocked Beirut, Lebanon. It was noteworthy because this explosion wasn't due to the political instability of the world at the time. It was due to the physical instability of that region. The explosion was caused by improper storage of chemicals, specifically ammonium nitrate. Physics dictates that ammonium nitrate is relatively stable unless certain factors impact it, such as time and temperature. The eventual result was a massive fireball that shook the ground and leveled buildings and city blocks and even took some lives there. As long as the laws of physics for ammonium nitrate are kept, the chemical is stable. It poses no threat. But as soon as those laws were broken, the results were catastrophic. This is what it is like for sin. The laws of God establish reality. They create a safe and stable environment. But as soon as someone goes outside of those guides, the results are catastrophic. Because you've gone beyond reality. First, sin impacts our relationship with ourselves by distorting our picture of ourselves. Primarily, sin causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we should consider ourselves. We may consider ourselves smarter, more necessary, or more important than we really are. Such pride not only puffs up, but as James would say, or does say in his book, describing this aspect of sin, he says it causes self-deception. We won't see ourselves as we really are, and thus we do not see our need for others, or our need, most importantly, for God. It was pride that created the downfall for Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. We often laugh at the picture of him eating grass, like an ox that's found in verse 33. But if you look at what it says in verse 29... At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my might and powers, a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar's pride gave him an inflated view of himself, replacing God's glory and majesty by objectifying his own. Sin also impacts our relationship with others. 
Galatians 5, Paul lists the works of the flesh, noting sexual immorality, impurity, enmity, strife, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Each of those are personal in nature. They affect the person doing them. They are caused by the person doing them. But the impact is not just to them alone. The impact is to those around them just as much. Impacting friends, family, strangers, spouses, children, parents. One of the greatest lessons I've learned is being both a spouse and a father is that I never understood something in singleness and that that is my sin impacts others. I realize that the consequences of sin are not mine alone. They impact those around me. One of the most obvious examples we often come to and even talked about last week was David and Bathsheba. David's own lust and sexual immorality was not his alone to carry. It cost Bathsheba her husband. It cost Uriah his life. Consider the example of Abraham, though. Upon meeting Abimelech, he decides to lie by calling Sarah not his wife, but his sister. Had the Lord not intervened, such a sin would have not only impacted Abraham, it would have caused both Abimelech and Sarah to stumble in sin also. Even private sin is never private. It always impacts others, whether it be our relationship with those around us or ultimately God. That is the last catastrophic consequence of sin. It impacts our relationship with God. If a person allows sin to persist enough, they will find themselves in eternity without God. But for the believer, the consequence is the grieving of the Spirit, as found in Ephesians 4. Jerry Bridges calls attention to our sin and its impact on God in this way, saying, Sin says to an absolutely holy and righteous God that his moral laws, which are a reflection of his own nature, are not worthy of our wholehearted obedience. Sin transgresses God's holiness, infringes on God's kindness, and supplants God's glory by replacing a desire for God with a desire for self. William Farley reminds us, sin destroys everything it touches. It destroys the glory of God. It distorts individual happiness. It corrupts families. It divides churches. It is like rat poison. It smells and looks good, but ultimately kills its victim. Although sin often brings short-term pleasure, if not atoned for, it terminates in infinite pain. The intensity of sin interprets the magnitude of Christ. If all are capable of sin, as Romans 3.23 assures us, then all are in great need of this Savior. They are all in great need of this provision. We need Christ to save us from our sins. The sacrifices of the Old Testament all point forward to this Savior, the one who would be the ultimate sacrifice once and for all. Instead of the repeated sacrifices of innocent animals in place of impure humans, Christ's one sacrifice as a pure Lamb of God was sufficient for all. It's no small task to have declared in Acts 3.26, God, having raised up his servant, Christ, 
sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. We read about the birth of Christ with great joy because it causes us to jump forward in history to see the impending death of Christ on the cross and to see his coming resurrection by which our sins will be atoned for. The birth of Christ points us to the cross of Christ. The birth of Christ points us towards the fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah that we read this morning in chapter 53. I won't read the whole chapter, but here are some verses. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put, his, put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. In verse 12, the very last verse of the chapter, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This was the plan of God for Christ since the beginning of creation. I want you, as we close, to think seriously about something and consider how God forms each individual in the womb. And in this case, think about God's formation of Christ in Mary. Christ's head was formed so that it might bear the pain of the crown of thorns. The forming of his hands and his wrists took place so that in them they might bear the nails embedded in them to hold him on the cross. The formation of Christ's feet and ankles took place so they might bear the nail that would perforate his body, that would place him before a mocking crowd. And the Formation of his side took place so that it would eventually be pierced by the spear confirming his death. Jesus Christ was born to die. We celebrate the birth of Christ because it brings about the death of Christ. And the death of Christ means our life. Father God, we come before you with what we would call the spirit of Christmas, Lord. We're coming to a time of year where we would celebrate the ultimate gift, the gift of your son. Father, I pray that we would not take that gift for granted, Lord. Father, this is truly an amazing, incredible gift, a gift that you planned before time, Lord that we might benefit from it, that our sins may be atoned for, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that as we do indeed enter this time to think about you, we enter time with friends and family, Father, help us to reflect on the significance of this. Let us see your plan as it was taking place throughout history. But most importantly, let us see your provision. Let us acknowledge our need for you. And let us come before you in great worship this Christmas season, Lord. Convict our hearts. 
convince us to draw nearer to you in all that we do. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.